0: As you just heard, I learned a very practical and helpful lesson this week. Maybe, maybe, the week that you preach, don't go to a very large worship conference, because there will be a lot of people there, and maybe, just maybe, you'll get sick. So that one's for free. Don't do that. So maybe you'll have to bear with me just a little bit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would speak now as we study your word. I'm stepping into this pulpit feeling weaker than I was expecting to feel. So I pray that you would guide my words. I pray that the things that I offer this morning would be from you and not from myself. And if there is anything that is not consistent with your word, that you would blot it out from the memory of those that hear it. I pray for this congregation. I think about the many, many people that are here this morning. I pray for those that are feeling joyful and uplifted today. I pray for those that are feeling weary and tired. I pray for those that are new to this church, new to faith and know little of your word, and are feeling that. And I also pray for those that have walked with you for years. Pray for the young, for the old, I think especially of the the young in this service, that they would be able to engage with this passage. We know that you will work here in this time, in this text, and we pray all of these things in your Son's name. Amen. Have you ever tried to comfort someone in the midst of great despair? Maybe you've had an experience like this. In college, your roommate John comes into your dorm room. He looks frail. His skin is pale. His eyes are staring blankly ahead. He sits down on his bed, pulls his knees up to his chest, and wraps his arms around them protectively. His shoulders slump. His head hangs. It's like a great weight is pulling down on him. You ask him, Hey man, what, what happened? Are you okay? Hannah, he says. She ended it. We're done. You know right away, that's a big deal. They've been together for years. She was everything to him. And as you talk with John, you get a new sense of why they call it heartbreak. Something looks and feels broken about John. Have you ever tried to comfort someone when they feel like that? You might be a very close friend, you might have the very best of intentions, but in all likelihood, how is John going to respond? It's probably going to feel like you're speaking just words into a void. John will Likely continue to stare blankly ahead. And you'll get a sense that his mind is just a million miles away. He's barely even registering the things that you are saying to him. He's just numb in this moment. A cloud of grief hangs over him. And all of the kind words that you offer are getting suffocated in that cloud. Grief influences you as well. It's very difficult to help a lost person that is feeling like that. So whether you relate more, in that illustration, to the heartbroken person or to the person trying to offer comfort, you can see that both of them are facing challenges. No matter who you relate to, our passage for this morning is going to speak to you. In our passage, Exodus 6, 1 through 13, God takes on this role of a caring friend offering hope to, a, to people that are dealing with a very similar form of despair. God comes alongside his people and offers them promises of hope in their trouble. So in this passage, you will see, if you are God's, he promises you deliverance from enslavement to sin, even if you are blind and doubtful. So turn with me to Exodus 6, 1 through 13. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament, second book right at the beginning of your Bible. Here's the context for our passage. Moses was a Hebrew man who grew up in Egypt, and he left and encountered God in the desert. God appeared to him as a burning bush that was not consumed. God told him, return to Egypt And tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And this was because the Hebrew people were enslaved there in Egypt. They were suffering under their cruel taskmasters. Now Moses has obeyed. His brother Aaron went with him and spoke to Pharaoh as Moses' mouthpiece. And Pharaoh scoffed at this God that he does not know. He says, in essence, these people are mine. And I'm going to work them to the bone if it pleases me. He's so angry at this request that he stops giving the Hebrews straw to make bricks. It's like he's saying, you're going to keep making soup, but I'm not going to give you the potatoes anymore. Or you're going to keep building cabins, but now you're going to cut your own lumber. He's just pressing down his thumb on these people that are already crying out from under their burdens. And so the people are now very much at rock bottom And you can imagine them snapping at Moses. They're saying things like, you fool, you've made our situation worse. Thanks a lot for that. Thanks a lot for coming back and making things worse for us. And so Moses has been laughed out of the room by Pharaoh, in essence. And the people that he came to save, his own people, are giving him murderous looks as they shuffle by under their heavy burdens. So I'm going to pick up In verse 21 of chapter 5, and they said to them, They, there is the foreman of Israel, speaking to Aaron and Moses. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. You can feel the desperation just pouring out of Moses. And now our passage. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, that is, Jehovah. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Jehovah the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians." I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, The people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So, as we study our passage together, I'm going to frame it for us four main points. So, number one, our first five verses. We see here that when you are filled with doubts, God graciously repeats His promises. So we see Moses cries out to God, and God comes alongside him like that caring friend that is trying to offer perspective to someone in despair. God makes clear to Moses O Moses, not only will Pharaoh release my people, they will be driven out with a strong hand. And that phrase driven out could be translated expelled. You get this image here of a forceful push. We're leaving the end of the summer season. Have you ever pushed a friend into a pool on a hot summer day? Line it up perfectly, get a nice two-handed shove, send someone flailing into the water. A great translation of force from one person to another. It's always amusing. God promises that Pharaoh is going to be sending the people out with that same type of force. Now, it should be noted, this will not be a shove, like shoving a friend in a pool, which is kind of from a playful attitude. This is a shove that is going to be filled with spite And frustration, Pharaoh will be forcing them out. God says, go, go, please. God also reminds Moses of his history with this people. He says, don't you know that I am a covenant God? Moses, I am the God of all of your forefathers. And then he gets even more personal with Moses. He says, Moses, you know my name. I told you at the burning bush, I am who I am. So aren't these excellent reminders to a man that is just overwhelmed with doubt? Don't you see how God could have taken the role of tough love with Moses? Come on, Moses, sit up straight. Don't be so anxious. I'm going to take care of you. Calm down. You need to be a strong leader. Toughen up. But that's not who our God is. We see here God sits on the bed beside Moses, as it were, like that wise friend offering comfort. He rests his arm over his shoulder, and he says to Moses, gently, lovingly, I hear you, Moses. You are mine. Let me tell you again what I have said I will do. Isn't this encouragement so helpful for us in our own lives? We struggle with anxiety. We grapple with doubts. Like Moses, you can take them to your Heavenly Father. Do you? Or do you just bottle them up? What, what is it that could be stopping you? Are you buying the cultural message that we swim in right now that you need to be doing all right you've got no problems, you're fine, you're smiling, you're happy, you're good, nothing that you need support for? Or do you maybe assume that God is going to respond to you with tough love, not gentle love? Whatever the reason, this passage teaches us that because of Christ, God the Father is ready to sit on the bed beside you. He's ready to offer comfort in your doubts. The Bible gives us so much evidence of this that we need reminders of this truth. We need reminders that this is who God is because we don't just get a few stories in the Bible. We have hundreds and hundreds of years worth of history of God acting for his people. Hundreds of years of God saving people, rescuing them, being gracious to his people, fulfilling his prophecy over and over and over again. That's why we gather as a church every Sunday to study this book. Week by week, day by day, we need these reminders. We don't need reminders that we are strong, that we're going to persevere. No, we need reminders of who God is and what he will do. When you are filled with doubts, God graciously repeats his promises verses 6 through 8, our second point. When you're filled with despair, God promises hope for the future. We see in verse 6 that now God shifts his attention to the people, and he begins again emphatically, I am Jehovah, which we render, I am the Lord, Lord, all caps. You'll notice in verse 8, it's how he closes his comments as well. Again, this is God's personal name. God's name is so powerful, it's like he's using it as his signet ring. Maybe you remember how in ancient times, rulers would wear their seal on their signet ring. Before a decree would go out, they would take that seal and press it to the hot wax on the paper to say, this decree, this law truly comes from me. It is binding. You get that image here with God's name of him pressing the seal to the, to the paper. I am who I am. These things will happen. So what future does he decree for his despairing people? Oh, he says, these burdens that are crushing you, I'm going to lift them up off your backs. The horrors of slavery, I'm going to wipe that away. Verse 6, he says that he will stretch out his arm to save them. In all the best movies, you have a scene where the hero is dangling precariously off a ledge, off a cliff, about to fall. To me, the the movie that comes to mind is The Return of the King. You have a weary and bloody Frodo hanging off the ledge, about to fall into the lava of Mount Doom as his friend Sam desperately reaches to save him. Don't you let go! Reach! and You always feel that immense sigh of relief as their arms clasp, and he is saved. So also will God stretch out his arm to rescue his people. He has decreed it. Do you see that God not only promises deliverance here, but he also promises relationship. In verse 7, he says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. So this isn't just the end of human tyranny. This is full adoption that is being offered. This is going to be a two-way relationship with an authority figure, which is something that these people have never experienced in their lives. They will know him and follow him, and he will know them and take care of them. Verse 8, I will give you the land that I promised. When I read this, it's like a gift. I get this image of a gift of encouragement, the kind of gift that dads love to give. Maybe you know what this is like. Have you ever had a, do you ever have a cavity filled when you're a kid? It is miserable. You have people poking around in your mouth. You just want to be outside and play. Now you're home. Your face is numb. You don't know if there's drool hanging out of your mouth. You're just miserable. And in walks dad, who knew that this was going to be a bad day. And he has a secret smirk. He's carrying something behind his back. He comes over to you lying on the couch and reveals to you, oh, it's the new Lego set. It's the one that you really wanted. And now you are drooling, but it's for a different reason. And so you snap up. Your aching mouth is forgotten. And dad beams at you. That's the type of hope that God is offering here. It's the salve on your wounds that washes away the aches. It's the gift that makes you forget your pain. Freedom. Relationship. The promised land. That is what God is offering. Hope for the future, for those in despair. And it's the same as what He offers to you. Do you long for freedom? God will give you freedom from the sin that overpowers you. Relationship? God will adopt you to be His very own. A promised land? God offers new heavens and a new earth. To both the ancient Israelites and to you today, God offers hope for the future. Verses 9 through 13, our third point. We see forgiveness for the weak. We see that a follower of God is known not by our perfection. But by our faith in his forgiveness. Verse 9 shows us the people's response to God's offer. Moses relays the message faithfully, but the people, they won't hear it. Their spirits are broken. Their whole lives, they've been living in torment. You remember our heartbroken roommate, John? The Israelites have that same million mile stare. They are blind. In their despair. God is offering them so much to hope for, but how much of it can they see when their knees are aching and their sweat pouring off their foreheads? None of it. So we must see here that pain and suffering often blinds us to the good things that God has right over the horizon. When we feel strained When we are brought low with despair, remember the people of Israel and their blindness. When you think of this story, remember its ending. God unleashes the plagues on all of Egypt. He does break Pharaoh's will. Pharaoh does expel them and send them out. God fulfills every single promise that he gave to this people, and he demonstrates over and over again that he is exactly who he said he was. God delivered to Israel freedom from tyranny, relationship with God himself, and he did bring them into that promised land. So friends, when you feel that cloud of despair settling over you, remember the truth of this passage and the warning. Right over the horizon, God has good things in store for you. Right around the corner, He has exactly what you need. But beware of the blindness that despair can bring. So, the people respond poorly, but how about Moses, their leader? Now God says, All right, Moses, time to go back and talk to Pharaoh again. But now, Moses peppers God with objections. He says, I couldn't even convince my own people. Now you want me to convince a tyrant? But God commands him to go all the same. Really think about the depth of Moses' doubt here, what he has already been through. God handpicked him to serve this role. He plucked him out of isolation in the desert. Moses is the man whose bare feet walked upon holy ground at the burning bush. He's the same man who rightly cowered before the very voice of God as God declared his, his divine name to him. And this same man saw miraculous signs in the desert. And this same man says to God Almighty that his plan isn't going to work. What's he afraid of? Well, he's afraid that he can't convince others. He's carried this fear for a while. At the burning bush, he actually tried to pass on his role of deliverer. He's worried about his social abilities, about his lack of eloquence. Don't you see in his demeanor how he's thinking about his own abilities to persuade others, not about God's power to act? His fear is, how will I accomplish this? And He's not considering at all what God Almighty might do if you had been there, how would you have spoken to Moses? Don't you feel like you would want to grab him by his robes and just, you know, shake him a little bit? Hey man, don't, don't you know who you're talking to? What are you saying? But yet, if you're honest, does Moses remind you of yourself? Don't we all find ourselves tempted to argue with God just like this? Now, by all rights, God should have fired Moses on the spot. That's how we handle insubordination these days. You question your boss, just like this, you're going to have a meeting scheduled with HR. and You're going to hear, listen, we, j- we really want someone here who's a team player, okay? We need someone that can get behind our corporate vision. We're going to have to let you go. And that's because our culture is, simply doesn't believe in forgiveness and grace. In fact, today, we actually celebrate someone else's punishment. You've heard of cancel culture, where someone's past failures and indiscretions are dug back up. Old, off-color jokes, something foolish you did in college. It's dug back up and floodlights are shined on it. We actually celebrate public shaming in our culture today. And we cheer when someone's past mistakes cause them to lose their job. Now think about Moses. Think about all of the weaknesses throughout his life. He has a rap sheet of cancelable offenses. He's not just a doubter and an arguer, but he's also a murderer. Earlier in Exodus he he killed an Egyptian and got away with it. Later in Exodus, he smashes the stone tablets in anger. He's a man prone to wrath. Not exactly an ideal candidate to lead this people. The people themselves, of course, are no better. Adulterous, whining, unclean. They have plenty of offenses that would give God the right to sever ties with them as well. But how does God treat them He forgives them, he speaks gently to them, and he accomplishes incredible things through Moses. A relationship with God does not mean that your failures are publicly shamed like our culture would do. Now, it is right to see sin as serious. In fact, it is right to say that it is gravely serious because sin inevitably leads to the grave. But if you follow God, if you trust in Jesus Christ and as a sacrifice for your sins, there is forgiveness, there is redemption, there is restoration. Moses followed God by faith, and God used him mightily until the end of his days. Want proof? You don't need to look any further than Hebrews 11. Here in Hebrews 11, we find the famous chapter known as the Hall of Faith, where the great heroes are honored for their faith in God and for the lives that they lived. So picking up in verse 24, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Does that sound like the doubtful fool that we just read about in our passage? God forgives doubters. He forgives fools. He forgives murderers and complainers and adulterers. He forgives sinners. If you follow God, his word makes clear you will not be known by your perfection. You will not be known by your flawlessness. You will be known by your faith in his mercy. And finally, number four, the story of the Exodus foreshadows God's ultimate deliverance in our Savior. Because this is only the beginning of what God will do as he saves his people. The Hebrew people were brought out from Egypt and given God's law at Mount Sinai. They needed to be taught what a holy God would would require of them. And they faced the brutal reality that they could never live up to that law. They had been freed from slavery to men, but not yet freed from slavery to sin. But God was not finished with his redemptive work. He progressively reveals his plan to release them from bondage to sin in the life and death of his son. And so, the same certainty with which God promises to rescue this people from Pharaoh is the same certainty that he speaks to us in Romans 10, where his apostle Paul writes, if you confess with your heart that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As surely as he rescued this despairing people, so surely will he rescue you when you turn to him in faith. So do you feel enslaved to sin? Does it feel like a master over you, leading you to destruction? Do you need a leader who will bring you deliverance? Well, this passage highlights the perfection of Christ's work on the cross, and his role as our perfect leader. Think about it. Moses argued with God about his role of leader. In the garden, Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. Moses had to die to his fears to lead this people. But Jesus had to actually lay down his life to lead his Moses was rescuing people from slavery to men, but Christ rescued us from slavery to sin. Moses could only save the Hebrew people, but Christ's death is for all people in all times. Moses would falter. He'd give in to doubts, give in to anger, and ultimately he would not be able to lead his people into the promised land. But Jesus lived a flawless life, never faltering, so that he would be the perfect sacrifice for sin. And he is the Lord of heaven, the eternal promised land, which does not need to be conquered, but is the inheritance of God's people. We see in the redemption of Exodus the nature of our God The God who saves, the God who delivers, the God of fulfilled promises. Do you feel that you are beyond redemption? Is your hope snuffed out? Trust in the redeeming work that God has accomplished for you. He promised deliverance to this ancient people and he delivered. He will deliver for you as well. Would you consider all that we have discussed for a moment? Pray with me. Father, help us to come to you in our doubts. Give us your hope when we are overwhelmed with despair. And help us to remember that it is the object of our faith, not the strength of our faith, that actually saves us. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.